John chapter 8. You know, I read in the uh, Lakeland, I don't, uh, I get the emails for the Lakeland Ledger, and the story of this past week, some of you may have seen about the plane crash, small plane crash where two planes in Winter Haven uh, collided into each other. And the uh, article said that it, uh, and I'll just read some of this, a National Transportation Safety Board investigator said Thursday, I think it happened on Tuesday, that officials recovered both of the planes involved in the mid-air Winter Haven crash that killed four people, including a 19-year-old student pilot. Lynn Spencer, an air safety investigator for the eastern region of the NTSB, said officials recovered the Piper J3 Cub and everything except the right wing of the Cherokee Piper 161. The two aircrafts collided and crashed into Lake Hartridge near the Winter Haven Regional Airport on Tuesday. Radio transmissions show that the Cherokee aircraft was announcing its location and intentions while performing various maneuvers seconds before the impact occurred, but it is not known whether the other aircraft could hear this. One, uh, the lady who was with the NTSB said this, and this is what I wanted to get to. At these altitudes, which was low flying, it is not required that a pilot communicate or even have a radio in this airspace. Okay? And then she went on to say, our preliminary information at this point is that neither airplane had any kind of avoidance system or radar that would have alerted them to the other aircraft. They were simply relying on sight visibility, and when the other aircraft came literally towards them, they tried to make a maneuver, but it was too late. I'm thankful that we have a reliable guidance system of the Word of God. Amen? When I read that, I thought of God's guidance system that He has given us and that we have the reliable, true words of God that is always sure. Listen, if you're going through this life just relying on sight, visibility, you're going to crash. You're going to crash and burn. You need God's radar system. You need God's GPS, whatever you want to call it. You need God's guidance system to help you see what you can't normally see with the naked eye. You need to help and get the help of God's Word. And I'm thankful that we have the reliable words that are in Scripture and the reliable words of Christ. And as we're studying in John chapter 8, we're seeing a transition go on as we're moving forward in John chapter 8. We're coming uh, into that period, really around chapter 7, where we've gone from the great crowds that are coming to Jesus, and there still is a lot of popularity there, but we're also seeing the division take place. We're seeing people that come along and are now in opposition to Christ. They are opposing Christ, and many of these are the uh, a group of these Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, mainly Pharisees and scribes as the Scriptures refer to them, and we're seeing that they are now in opposition and opposing Christ. We're seeing their 
pushing back on things that Jesus has done. And one of the reliable things that we are going to look at this morning, we sung about uh, heaven a little bit in one of the songs that we sang, but I'm thankful that in God's reliable guidance system, we have the reliable, sure direction of God's Word concerning living in heaven in the presence of God when we die. The death rate in Polk County is 100%. Now some of you and Kathleen, that takes a moment. See, I can pick on Kathleen because I live in Kathleen, all right? Listen, we, I'm, I'm doing a memorial of a man in my block who died, and I was there moments at 3 a.m. when he died. It was, death is a reality. But for the Christian, we want to have a reliable guidance system that gives us the truth. Regardless of what we think or see or how we think we're going to navigate the site and what we're just going to, we're going to maybe at the last minute, maybe like one of these pilots, uh, try to make a last minute maneuver. We don't need to do that. We need to listen to the reliable words of Jesus talk about the eternal truth of heaven. You remember Jesus said in John 14, we'll look at this at some point as we move along, Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions, maybe you remember it in the King James. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus talks about where he is, that heaven is a place, it's a prepared place. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Jesus made that promise that we can rely on. And I read this uh, quote, and it was actually a quote of somebody in the wonderful uh, companion or the volumes by Charles Spurgeon on the Psalms come the treasury of David. And it's by a man by the name of Thomas Fuller. And I thought, wow, what a, what a powerful quote. And it'll be on the screen. And he says, You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Think about that. You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Jesus gave us and always walks us through reliable information and direction concerning eternal salvation, eternal life. Something that the loving Savior reminds us that there is not a second opportunity beyond the grave. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible doesn't teach purgatory where you'll just have a little uh, a waiting area where you can kind of work out whatever you didn't work out here on earth. There's no such thing in Scripture. The Scripture is very clear that eternal salvation is found in Christ and that it is in this life that God has provided the means and opportunity to respond to the truth and the gospel. And so it's crucial that if we are going to navigate like those pilots or maybe not like those pilots, it's crucial that we have that reliable navigation of the truth. And I say all that just as we kind of 
uh, to kind of milk that metaphor a little more as I circle the runway, and we're going to land around John 8, or in John 8, and we see that in the context, Jesus is having this pushback with the Pharisees. Remember, they were, oppos- they were in opposition, and, and, and their opposition and hostility is growing more intense as day, the day went on. And, and we looked in chapter 7 a few weeks back, but this was coming off of what was the great feast of tabernacles that was one of the three main feasts that Jews uh, came to Jerusalem every year. And Jesus stood in John 7 and said, remember, he, he stood and made that great proclamation on the last day of the great feast where he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. All right? Jesus made that proclamation. And again, crowds are responding, and that is a threat to these religious uh, elites, these religious leaders. The Pharisees were, were very hostile, and they were growing hostile. And in John 8, just again, kind of to get a little flavor of the context, we see this hostility in verse 13, John 8, 13. It says, So the Pharisees said to Jesus, You're bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. They just flat out saying, you know, you're a liar. You're not true. What you're saying is not true. In fact, they even made a slur against him in verse 19, where they said, where is your father? Now, they weren't talking about their heavenly father, but they were perpetuating the falsehood and the rumor that he was born uh, illegitimately that uh, the rumor that uh, there's even rumors that the religious leaders spread that Mary, uh, uh, that the father of Jesus was a, was a Roman official that um, was with Mary. And so they wanted to perpetuate the idea that he was an illegitimate child, that he's not the legitimate child of, of Joseph, uh, his stepfather. And so they wanted to kind of slur him and say, well, where is your, your father? Kind of in that vein. And so In this disparaging moment of hostility, Jesus kind of pushed forward three truths that I called the title of this morning is just straight talk from Jesus. Straight talk from Jesus, and it's straight talk from Jesus, uh, I'll narrow it down to the theme of heaven. Straight talk from Jesus about heaven. Straight talk of how we can be assured of our eternal heaven, our eternal home, go to heaven uh, when we die. Now again, Christianity is more than just going to heaven. It's living in heaven here in the here and now, but this ain't, this is not heaven. You know, some people, this, if this is supposed to be heaven, uh, I may want my money back, all right? You know, th- you know, so it doesn't mean that there's not relevancy and power in life, and we won't look at it, but the scripture that is the theme scripture, or really the purpose of why John wrote, he wrote what he did in 20, John 20, 31, where he says, I'm writing these things that you would believe, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. So it isn't just having your ticket punched to go to heaven when you die, but it's having life in his name, living and enjoying the full life that God has for us. But Jesus does give us some straight talk and some direction concerning heaven and what is involved in the assurance of knowing that we are going to heaven. And so this morning we're going to unpack uh, John chapter 8 and we're going to look at verse 21 through 29. John 8 is a big chapter, so we're not going to finish all of chapter 8 today, but we're going to zero in on primarily 
uh, on verse 21 through 29, and we may look at a few scriptures outside of that. But this morning, before we open the Word and ask the Lord to teach us by the Spirit, let's pray once again. Father, we thank You, Lord, that Your name is power, Your name is life. Lord, direct us today. Thank You for, God, a willing heart, open ears today of Your flock that are gathered here. I just pray, God, that You'll just replenish them for maybe a lack of rest and sleep and losing that hour, but God, give them a, a, give them a, a, a spiritual a, a shot of, of just your, your uh, energy today, Father, as they are here and setting their hearts aside, God, to listen to the Word of God, to be engaged with the Holy Spirit in the worship and the Word. We thank you, God, for your truth. We thank you. It's a reliable guidance system that always leads us to truth. And we bless you in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen. Notice three things in this passage this morning, and you were given an, a little blue sheet in your bulletin, a listener's guide, that uh, many of you have said that's been very helpful to follow along, and so I encourage you to use that, be engaged, and I, I guarantee you, you will get more out of the message today if you're an engaged listener. If you're not then uh, Sean will give you your money back after the service, all right? So anyway, look with me at the first, first observation here in, in, our, in our outline, and that is, number one, is that to go to heaven, it's important or you need to recognize uh, that your true condition before God as a sinner. You must recognize your true condition before God as a sinner. Verse 19 and they, these Pharisees, said to Jesus, therefore, where is your father? Kind of, again, that slur. And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. You don't know who I am nor my father. And again, he wasn't talking necessarily at this point about his earthly father, even though that's what they were trying to slander him. Notice what he says. If, if you knew me, you would know my father. You see, the Bible tells us that the root problem of the human race is uh, that we are born into sin, we are alienated from God. That is our nature. That is the condition of the human race. And because we do not intricately or intrinsically uh, have the spiritual ability in of ourselves without an outside uh, impartation, revelation by God's uh, sovereignty, that we don't naturally bend towards knowing God. We are alienated from God. We are separated from God. That's the picture we see throughout Scripture. And we do not know about who God is. Romans 3 says that we don't even, uh, there, there are none who seek after God. You've heard me say that, you, you know, and, and we certainly are spiritual beings, but Romans 3, when it says none seek after God, it doesn't mean that people don't seek things that God provides. I mean, everybody wants peace and joy, uh, relief of their guilt and depression. Everybody, most people want that. But the Bible speaks about that in our nature, the last one that we want is the God of very gods, the holy God who created all things. And so the Bible says in John 3, 3, remember when we looked at Nicodemus, that unless you are born again, you cannot see 
the kingdom of God. There must be a work of regeneration. And oftentimes what we do, because we want to comfort ourselves in in our condition to say, well, I'm not really as bad, what do we do? We compare ourselves with somebody else. Now, I hope everybody here that if you compare yourself to Jeffrey Dahmer, you are infinitely better than that. Hello? And if you're not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little worried, you know. Uh, in, other words, in other words, we think, well, I'm not as bad as this person or bad as that person. The problem is that's the wrong measuring stick. My life, your life, you're not to measure against me. You're not to measure against somebody here in the room. It's who am I in light of this infinitely holy, majestic creator of all the universe. Jesus said in verse 21 of our chapter that we're looking at, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now being unspiritual people, they misunderstood his words. Verse 22, they said, Is he going to kill himself? I mean, that's kind of their mind thinking. But see, an unspiritual person, remember Nicodemus when Jesus talked to him about being born again? What was Nicodemus' response? Very natural. It wasn't spiritual. How can a man enter twice in his mother? You know, that's how he was thinking. The woman at the well, she thought there was some secret water source. Give me that water. I mean, but there's a spiritual component And these people that were putting themselves as God's spokespeople and putting themselves in opposition, uh, they weren't hearing. They could hear, but they weren't able to hear with their spiritual ears what Jesus is saying. Verse 23, Jesus, or he said to them, Jesus said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world, meaning your nature, your nature, your mindset is not heavenly. Your nature is not from God as I am from God, from above, using that contrast there. Uh, you are of this world. Your thinking, your mindset is limited, is worldly. You just think and act according to what you see, hear, taste, touch, all that, because that's your mindset. That's your nature, and that, apart from the Spirit of God in our lives, that's kind of how we navigate life. But Jesus says, I am not of this world. Jesus is giving them some straight direction and straight talk when he says, look, there is a, there is a unimaginable or unbridgeable gap between you and where you originate and where I'm from. He's making the contrast that between where he originates, who he is from the Father, and from their way of thinking, that he says you are dead in your sin, and that, and that you are limited in your ability to understand spiritual things. But see, we want to figure, well, you know what? I'll, I'll bridge this gap between my righteousness and God's righteousness, And I'll figure, you know what, I'll just start going to church more. And I'll just start doing some good things. And I'll start dropping, instead of dropping a five in the box in the back, I'll drop a ten every once in a while. And those things are going to kind of offset the balance 
and separation between myself, my sinful nature, and God. But see, the Bible says in verse 27 that they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They did not understand that he was speaking about spiritual things. And even maybe some in this room today, when we're talking about sin and we're talking about the holiness of God, you're having difficulty understanding. And that's where, again, you need to say, God, help me. This, this, what I'm, I'm hearing, help me to understand what I've never been taught. Help me to understand what, what is just not natural uh, to my way of thinking. Help me to understand spiritual truths. You see, Jesus made the point very clearly that he originated, when he said, I'm from above, he made it very clear that he was sent by God, that he is part of the holiness of God, that he is God of every God. Remember back in John 5, he said, for as the Father has life in himself, 5 verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him, his Son, the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is trying to show them he is so radically different than them that they can't eat. Here they are, think about it, these men who have given their entire lives to studying God, to knowing God. And here is God, a very God, in the person of Jesus Christ standing right before them. And they don't have a clue of who he is. Paul would help us to understand that spiritual separation, a part of how we must, we must see ourselves as guilty sinners before a holy God, that if we don't understand our condition, we can't understand the remedy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, gives us some insight. He said the natural person, he's talking about the person who is not born again, the person who is not converted. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolishness, and he is not able. That word able is important. That speaks of ability. He doesn't have the ability in and of himself to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Companion scripture to that is in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, speaking again to those who reject the truth of God, he said, in their case, the God of this world, again, he's talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus is giving us some straight talk that we must believe the truth about ourselves that we, are, we come before a holy God. We don't bring any works of righteousness. The only thing we bring before this holy God is our sin. That's all we offer. That's all we can offer. We are guilty before a holy God. And without intervention, without Christ, we are without hope. But notice secondly, in John 8, with the theme around going to heaven, to go to heaven, believe in Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. You see, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about who Jesus is. There's a lot of counterfeit Jesuses. Remember, Jesus even said in Matthew 24, there will be, there will be those who come in that day, in the last days, that will say, I'm the Messiah. 
And there certainly has been a track through history of the David Koresh's and the Jim Jones and, you just, and even lesser ones that have come along. So having the right Jesus is important. It's, it's key to knowing and having the assurance that when I die, that I have that assurance that I'll be with Him in the presence of His person in heaven. I watch uh, sometimes on Saturday night, you know, how many of you know what mindless TV is? You say, well, that's just about everything on TV. But, but there's mindless TV. and In other words, it's where you kind of have something on and you can kind of have it playing in the background. It's on, but you don't really have to pay that much attention to it. And I'll tell you, I won't confess on my wife, but I'll tell you what, and it's kind of what, you know, might be for, and it's just, again, it's kind of when you might be on your iPad or you're doing something else and you're just, you're just kind of, relaxing a little bit. And for me, that's shows like Cops. You know, it's nothing to make me feel better than watch people get arrested, right? Uh, cops. And there's another one about to catch a smuggler, you know, and they're going through all the various ports of entry in, in Colombia or, or Guatemala or Miami or whatever, and they're smuggling in drugs or whatever. And one of the things about that, that smuggler thing, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You look at me like, oh, that's weird. No, all right, all right. So, one of the problems and things that happens many times, and it's so sad because evil people prey upon poor people to do things and throw money at them and put them in situations that they can't get out of, but they make these wrong choices out of desperate situations. So, you know, it's, many times it's a sad situation. But one of the things that you see oftentimes is in there is a person trying to get into a foreign country, maybe trying to get into... Colombia, Venezuela, or something, or even the United States, and they have a fraudulent passport. And so it doesn't take them long to go on there and look at that and say, this isn't you. This isn't you. This is a fraudulent passport. Listen, you don't want to, li to leave this earth with a fraudulent passport that is no good to where you need to go. Do you hear what I'm saying? You want to make sure that Jesus Christ, that you have the right Jesus. We don't need the Mormon Jesus. We don't need the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. We don't need the New Age Jesus. We don't need the progressive Jesus. We need the Jesus that Scripture clearly reveals. In fact, Jesus even says that the Scriptures identify Him in John 5, 39. Jesus said, again, to some of these religious folks, in another uh, context that we looked at a while back, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. I mean, you're so knowledgeable of the theology and the history, and yet you can't identify and understand that they speak about me. One of the most crucial questions Jesus asked his disciples and asked us is who do men say that I am? But he gets more specific when he says, but who do you say that I am? That has eternal consequences. And so the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 25, they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you, from the beginning, like you're not listening. You ever talk to somebody and they keep asking you the same question and say, if you would just listen to what I've already told you ten times, 
you'll you know, pay attention. He already told them. He's telling them. He says, verse 25, he says, what I've been telling you from the beginning, but it wasn't a lack of information. Many of you here today that may be struggling in crossing that line of faith into a commitment with Christ, you're not suffering from a lack of data. You're not suffering from a lack of information. The problem is you refuse to believe. You refuse to accept and exercise trust or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And within this, this, uh, this heading here of the importance of believing in Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture, notice several important truths. And these are already in your listener's guide. You don't have to put anything in there. You can just, again, have them as a quick reference here. It is, that you, it is vital to believe in Jesus that he is the eternal God sent to earth by the Father, that He is the eternal God, that He is God of very God, that His nature is from God, that He is the very nature uh, of deity. Verse 23, when He said to them, you are from below and I am from above, uh, you are from this world, I am not of this world, He is saying, look, my origin I have not come. I'm not among you. I'm different than you. My origin is different. Verse 26, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But notice what he says in verse 26. But he who sent me is true. Jesus is sent from God of very God. There's great mystery in that triune Godhead. But Jesus, that got their ire, that got their... Uh, that revved up their anger and hostility was that he claimed to be sent from God. And at other points, he claimed to be God of very God, as we'll see here in just a minute. And so it's important that you understand when Jesus says that you must be born again, you've got to accept the right Jesus. And if you have a Jesus that is less than what Scripture identifies him as God of very God, as the eternal God, sent from the Father. You're like, well, how can that be? How can that work out? I don't know. But the Scripture presents the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not three gods, one God, expressed in three persons, three personalities. And again, this isn't a message on the Trinity, and that'll be a fruitful time to get into that. But what I want you to see is he is identifying himself with the eternal God, and, and he'll identify himself as God. And if you have a Jesus that is less than what Scripture clearly presents him, you have a bridge that, is fall, that, that ends halfway across the ocean. Your bridge of your thinking or your rationalization of who Jesus is or what he makes sense to you or your composite theology based upon the history channel, then you have a Jesus less than Scripture, and a Savior not quite God is a bridge that is broken at the end. But we also need also, secondly, is believe that Jesus lived a sinless life in total dependence upon His Father. Now again, that slur, who is your Father, they already were kind of castigating His nature. But Jesus made the astonishing claim in verse 29 when He said, And He who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone. Notice what he says, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I can't say that, and you can't either. We don't do all things that are pleasing to him. But Jesus lived a sinless, 
perfect life. He was asked them the question, to jump ahead to a scripture we'll look at later, but it's in verse 46 of John 8. He says, which, which, of, which one of you convicts me of sin? He said, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Remember last week we looked at when Jesus knelt down, when they brought the woman that was caught in adultery, and Jesus knelt down and he began to draw on the ground. And then he began to say, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And what happened? There was only one person, only one person in that, that little group that could, could throw that stone. And you know who that was? It was Jesus. But he chose to act in love and compassion and forgiveness. You see, if Jesus was a sinner, if he was just a progressive human being, then his death would be like that fraudulent passport. It wouldn't do us any good. Believe in Jesus as the eternal God sent to earth by the Father. Believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. But also, something that Jesus, I think, tells us is believe that Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. Believe that Jesus was put on the cross, lifted up. Verse 21, so he said to them again, he said, I am going away. And essentially when I'm gone, uh, you'll seek me and you will die in your sins. That term lifted up means to be placed on the cross, to be crucified, Calvary. Uh, remember back in John 3, there's a story that Jesus tied in to this being put on the cross, and, it, and we won't look at it, but you may want to make a note of it if you weren't here or go back and listen to it, but it's an Old Testament story that many people just aren't familiar with, and it's in Numbers 21 when the children of Israel were uh, being uh, 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 bitten by these poisonous snakes, and you remember the Lord told Moses to take one of the serpents and put it on a pole, and whoever looks, and it was a picture looking ahead to the Savior that would be put on the cross, that would be lifted up, and God told Moses to tell the people that if you look up to that serpent on that pole, you'll live. Now, why is that a representation? Because Jesus became sin. He who did not know sin, who did not have a sin nature, became, if you will, our sin for our sake. And Jesus made that connection that just as there was life by looking to that provision, that provision back in Numbers 21 with Moses, that was temporary. That was just a physical remedy. But Jesus said in that little composite picture there, it was looking ahead to the one that would be put up on the cross, bearing our sin, that if you would look to him, you will live. You see, it's not looking to me. <coughs> it's not looking to a religious organization. It's not looking to yourself. And, but it's looking to the cross. And I'm not talking about two beams of wood. All right? I'm not talking about two beams of wood. I'm talking about using that as shorthand to represent the death of Jesus Christ. Where we see, yes, you see the holiness of God. You want to know what God thinks of sin? Look to the cross. And what it took... That the Son of God, it required God, a very God, in human flesh to die as the perfect sacrifice. You want to know what God 
and how heinous and, and the separation and the, the, of what sin is, you don't need to look any further than the cross. But it's also not just a demonstration of God's holiness and His justice, how God could be holy and yet the dispenser of holiness, how God could be just and the justifier. It's not just about that, but it's also a demonstration that God so loved sinners that He made provision for we couldn't help ourselves. He loved us, and compassion is seen at the cross. And see, any, any message that negates the cross is a false gospel. Any message that bypasses the cross is a false gospel. Paul battled this. The early church battled this time and time again. The whole book of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul to Christians that got sucked into a, to some cultish mindset that was a combination of going back to Jewish legalism and blending it with Christianity. If I make you an omelet with, and I'm going to make a group, I'm going to make omelets for the whole church, and I'm just going to put 30 eggs in there and scramble it up. But one egg is rotten. And I'll say, you know, 29 good eggs, one bad egg, it'll all work out, right? What do you think that would taste like? It'd be bad. You see, again, it's not, it's not seeing what outweighs. We don't have that kind of uh, balance. We can't do that. And so Paul in Galatians, if you want to read, haven't read Galatians in a while, he's battling those that want to have this syncretism between returning back to the law as a basis of righteousness and blending it in with Christianity. They're all for Jesus, but it's Jesus plus something else. And if you want to spot a false teacher, a cult, they'll always talk about Jesus, but it's plus something else. It's always something else you have to add in there. Maybe a membership to our group, or maybe our special book that's an addition to the Bible. Whatever it is, it's always Jesus plus something else. And Paul, in Galatians 1, made it very clear about the importance of the purity of the gospel when he said, even if an angel from heaven preach to you a different gospel than what I have told you. He says, let them be accursed. And that's kind of a nice Sunday morning way of saying, let them literally go to hell. There's a store, I think it was a barber shop, I can't remember. And there was a sign at the front door when you came in and it said, in God we trust, all others pay cash. You've probably seen somewhere like that. In other words, they only took cash. They didn't take checks, didn't take a, Ma a MasterCard, didn't take American Express, didn't take Mid-Florida debit card. Cash was the only payment he would accept in that business. And see... The death of Christ on the cross is the only payment that God will accept to pay for my sins and your sins. And Jesus is giving a straight talk that how we go to heaven, you must understand who He is and revealed in Scripture. He's the eternal God, lived a sinless life, totally dependent upon the Father. He was lifted up on the cross to die, to be a sacrifice. But also we see here 
is that Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Ascended after the resurrection. Acts 1, you can read about it, where he ascended. Went back temporarily to the Father. Why do you say temporarily? Because he's made it clear that he is literally returning. Zechariah says that one day all of Israel will see him put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's not coming back as a ghost. He's not coming back in the imitation of somebody born in a foreign country. This same Jesus, they said, that you saw go into heaven, those angels said, this same Jesus, this same Jesus bodily that ascended will one day return. Couldn't be clearer in Acts chapter 1. But the Bible says that if you do not believe in the resurrection, Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We're going to celebrate the resurrection in a few weeks. But there's a one final third observation in Jesus' straight talk about going to heaven. And it's thirdly, to go to heaven, believe in Jesus while there's still time. Believe in Jesus while there's still time. John 8, 21, he said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, look at this, when you have lifted up, when you have crucified me, When you've crucified the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. But here's the problem. It'll be too late. It'll be too late. We like the idea that we can kind of just do whatever we want. And we, you know, America, we have this, we have this very, uh, you know, talked about doing a funeral in less than an hour or a memorial. And it's always interesting in doing any type of uh, funerals or anything like that, especially for people that uh, aren't believers. Because they have such a mishmash view of death and heaven. I call it the all dogs go to heaven theology. It just kind of is this, you know, just kind of whatever a bit of Hollywood a little bit of Oprah, a little bit of, you know, Disney, you know, whatever it is. We have this, we have this, you know, we have this composite view of what life after death is. And the Bible is very clear in telling us that there is not a second opportunity to believe. That there is an opportunity now. This is the day of salvation. Now is the time. And if you're waiting and, you th- and the, 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 the uh, thief on the cross is your patron saint. Because you know that there will be at least seconds to minutes before you die. That you can believe. Man, you are you're taking such a risk. There is a time. There's an opportunity that God has given us. And so the Bible says, in this observation, is that to believe while there's still time. 
Jesus said in verse 24, He said, I told you that you would die in your sins. Look at this. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die. You will perish. You will die in your sin and face the judgment of God and the eternal punishment of hell. You see, we don't like talking about that. We like talking about every day is a Friday. That's, that's the all dogs go to heaven discussion we like. We like that. That's more appealing. But do you realize Jesus said quite a bit about hell? He said quite a bit about judgment? He gives us a little insight. I don't have it on the screen, but you may want to look at Luke 16. And it's the story about this rich man and Lazarus. And it gives a little insight between heaven and hell and, and some things that are, that are happening there. Some people think it's just a fictional fairy tale story that Jesus tells, but Jesus speaks of them as they were real people, and I kind of believe they were. But one thing that is interesting between this rich man, and you've got to understand the dynamic here, is because in Judaism, if you're wealthy and prosperous, you were seen as being blessed of God. And if you were a beggar in poverty and suffering, then that just exhibits that you're a sinner and under the judgment of God here on earth. But what does Jesus do? He flips the script. And the rich man's in hell, and the beggar is, in, is pictured at the, in the arms of Abraham. The old King James says, in the bosom of Abraham. Meaning, in our vernacular, he's in heaven. But it's interesting in that dialogue, Abraham, pictured in heaven, says this, when the one in hell is, is, is wanting some relief to his situation, and Abraham tells the rich man who's in hell, listen to it, he said, between us, there is a great chasm, a great separation that is fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you, or you to here, cannot are not able. They cannot cross over. I believe everyone who has died in their sins, who is under the judgment of God in hell, all of them, all of them, wish they weren't there. I took, when I was uh, doing some work for the uh, Polk County Sheriff's Department, one of the seminars that we took was on uh, suicide dealing with suicide and those situations, being first responders, working as a chaplain. And it's interesting, it had an individual who uh, they had on this video who had attempted suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. A rarity, because to my knowledge, maybe one or anybody's ever survived that. And this is something I'll never forget, he said. He said, the moment... I jumped. In that second, I regretted my decision. You say, well, I just want to live life. How far can I, you know, it's kind of like, how far can I get without falling over the edge? Well, how close do you want to let your kids play on I-4 without actually getting out in traffic? 
How close do you want to get over the edge of the Grand Canyon without falling over? That's the wrong way of thinking. But there's some people that just like, I, you know, I, I, there's limits to this religious thing. When I was, when my boys were little, sometimes I would, <clears throat> uh, where the church was and where I used to live was pretty close. You didn't have to go out on any major roads. And many times, uh, as maybe dads would do, I let them sit on my lap, hold the steering wheel, and they thought they were driving. And that just really created an illusion that they were in control. They weren't in control. Uh, my hands held that steering wheel underneath theirs. My foot was on the brake or on the accelerator. Uh, they couldn't turn the whole wheel. I was in absolute control. But they were in the illusion, perpetuated by Dad, I get it, uh, that they were driving, but it was an illusion that they were in control. That's the way many folks are with sin in their life. They think they got it under control when in reality it's controlling you. And you think everything's great until it bites you. Sin creates the illusion that we're in control until we're not. You may think, well, that, you know, this, this, this talk to Jesus, I mean, this is kind of not very loving talk about hell and judgment and about if you believe or you don't believe. I mean, that seems so kind of anti-American, you know, that seems so harsh that because we like, we like a, we like, we, we like that sentimental idea of Jesus, don't we? We're very comfortable at Christmas with the baby in the manger, right? We're very comfortable. That's, that's not threatening. But a returning Savior who's going to exercise judgment. Yes, the Bible, even Paul said this to a bunch of pagans in Acts 17. He said, by this man, he will execute God's wrath and God's judgment. Not upon believers, but upon those who rejected, who thought they had all the time in the world. You see, if you think it's unloving to talk about the warnings of Scripture, and we certainly have not talked about them much in depth, I kind of always think it's like, well, I don't want to offend my neighbor. I see their house on fire. But, you know, they could... You know, I don't know them that well. I only see them out mowing the grass. And, you know, who am I? And I see smoke billowing out of the second floor and the flames. And, no, oh, any normal, sane human being would run over there and do whatever you had to do to warn them to do what? Get out. Now. Don't. Don't worry about your PlayStation. Get out! If you're diagnosed with a disease, you don't want to go to a doctor, do you? Who will spare your feelings and lie to you. You don't want to go to a doctor who, well, you know, you know they're a nice guy and you know, I, don't, I, I want them to come back and give me their business. So 
um, you know, I'll just tell them to take two aspirins and call me in the morning when in reality they have a serious disease. But truth, truth oftentimes hurts, doesn't it? Just like a disease, you've got to understand and diagnose the problem before what? Before you can address the remedy. Jesus is the only preacher who made his congregation smaller with his sermons. That always gives me hope. He would have big crowds following him, but the Bible says, and read John 6, that as he began to tell them what, a, what it meant to be a follower, it says many left. John 6, verse 66. And then he turned to his disciples and his 12 and said, do you want to go too? And Peter, I love his answer. For you and you alone have the words of life. That's talk of a converted person. You and you alone have the words of life. I read about an older gentleman who had some health issues and he went to visit his doctor and the doctor told him to change his diet. The physician lectured the man on the importance of eating well and Quit eating so much Zaxby's and KFC and gave him a long list of things to eat and not eat. So the gentleman called his sons to let him know about his declining health. And as he knew his son would be concerned, uh, he wanted them to know what the doctor said. And he explained the doctor's prognosis and the prescription for restoring him to good health. The son was thankful for that. A couple of weeks later went by and one of the, the old man's sons followed up and called his dad to check in on him, and he said, uh, okay, dad, uh, the doctor gave you some instructions a while back. How's the new regimen going? And the old man replied, great, I changed doctors. <laughs> and that's what some people do. They don't like hearing the authenticity and the truth and the straight talk of the Word of God and Jesus and so what? I'll just shop around. That's the way America is. We're consumers. And we're going to shop around until, in fact, that is exactly what the Bible says in 1 Timothy, where he says that in the latter days, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who tickle their ears, who preach what they want to hear. It's not going to offend. It's not going to make anybody unhappy. It's not going to be the truthfulness that there is one name given under heaven, as the apostle said in Acts 4, by which men must be saved. Men and women, children. It's one name, one way. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way, he's not a truth, none of this nonsense of my truth, my truth, my math, your math. No, there's truth. We don't have that concept but the Bible, why? Because the Bible is an accurate guidance system, isn't it? It can guide us into truth. And my friend, if you'll anchor your life on the truthfulness of Christ and His Word, you have a surety and a clear way to navigate and allow Him to navigate you rather into His presence when we die. So I leave you with the question or the statement I read to you earlier that says you cannot repent 
too soon. Because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Let's pray.